It was on a tennis court that I learned the lesson, something much bigger than how to play tennis. It was this, which is that if you want to do anything really generative and creative, and if you want that generative and creative thing to be effective, you better first learn the basics. Let me see if we can get me from stopping humming here. That's not what I intend. It was maybe, I think, 1980. I was about 10 years old, and I had just started playing tennis about a year before. And I wanted to be like one of my heroes, if not in affect, at least the way that he played. I wanted to be like John McEnroe. And so I was taking a tennis lesson with uh, Neil of the Infinite Patience. That's what I called my, uh, my tennis instructor back then. Because I, those of you who are tennis fans perhaps remember... John McEnroe never hit any shot kind of totally squared up. He would, it's almost like he would hold the racket until the last possible moment, and then, depending upon where his opponent was, would then bring the racket around. And I was trying to do that at the, on the baseline as Neil of the Infinite Patience was hitting the balls to me. And so, you know, I, I didn't square up anything. I was wide open. My eyes were over here. The ball was over there. And, you know, so, plink, doink. Whiff. And Neil of the Infinite Patience decided he would come over to the other side of the net, my side, and say, I know you want to be John McEnroe, but first you've got to learn the basics. And so I really learned that day. See the ball all the way in. Rack it back. Square yourself up. Step into the ball. And there it goes across the net. Learning the basics, if we ever want to do anything truly creative, truly remarkable, learning the basics is necessary first. I remember those tennis lessons and the deeper lesson than the tennis lessons this past week when I watched today's movie for Spirit Flix, when I watched Moonrise Kingdom. Now, I know a lot of you probably haven't seen this movie yet, so I'm going to be very scarce on the plot details, but I have to tell you, see this movie. It is just simply magical. It's the best movie I've seen so far this summer for Spirit Flicks. It probably will be the best movie I'll see all summer. I would almost guarantee it. The, the plot itself is fairly rudimentary in many ways. It's basic kind of stuff. It's Susie and it's Sam, two very creative and maladjusted, maybe, maybe creatively maladjusted, young 12-year-olds who fall in love with each other and decide they're going to create a new life on their own. They're going to run away. They're going to run away from all their dysfunctional systems of camp where Sam is, from their family where Susie is, and they're going to make their own way in the world. Now, this is on an island off the coast of Maine in the late summer, and as often happens along the coast in the late summer, there is a big storm coming. There is a big storm brewing. And so they are trailed by a truly bizarre scout troop and a whole cast of kind of ragamuffin, oddball assortment of adults on their trail, not so much trying to bring them back to safety as they are really trying to bring them back into the fold. This movie feels to me like a fable. It looks almost at first glance like a stage play or even a dollhouse when you first take a look at it. It's kind of sepia-toned. It doesn't look like normal life, even if the plot isn't all that unfamiliar. The characters talk in odd cadences and have bizarre pauses, and Bill Murray is just so funny without trying to be funny. It looks in some ways like everyday life, but 
But it really doesn't look like everyday life. It is the familiar made unfamiliar. I'll give you just one visual example of this. This is a treehouse in Moonrise Kingdom. <laughs> Not quite stable, but visual jokes like this show up all the time throughout the movie. And there's a design for this. This is where Wes Anderson, the filmmaker, is really genius. He's not being strange in order to be strange. Sometimes he's accused of that. He's not being odd in order to be odd. I think he's trying to get us to say, you know what? Tree houses are really damn cool. So pay attention to this one. Pay attention to tree houses. Pay attention to your life. Pay attention to this movie. Emily Dickinson, the great reclusive poet, she said, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Repeat that. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. That means tell it in a way that people really pay attention, even if it's something they already know. The movie brings this home to me, brought it home to me, because it wanders away from our normal expectations of the way we would see the world so that we can, in fact, return to the wonder of the basic things of the world. Love and belonging and adventure and the quest for someone and people who really understand us. These are basic things that all of us feel regardless of the age, of any age we are. And this is Wes Anderson's skill. That by making things look so familiar, he gets us in touch with what is remarkably real for so many of us. It is so strange and so resonant. And mature spiritual teachers, and I include this movie in that category, mature spiritual teachers are always saying, learn the basics so you can transcend the basics without forgetting the basics. I mean, some of you have heard the word uh, Kabbalah. It has nothing to do with Madonna. It has nothing to do with Hollywood. Kabbalah is a serious mystical tradition in Judaism. It has been taught for centuries. It is strange and beautiful and bizarre at times and really enlightening. In the traditions, not the Hollywood traditions, but the traditions of Judaism, it is always said that rabbinical students first had to master the basics of the religious law. To know what the Bible said, the Torah said, before they could really learn Kabbalah. Now, some people interpret that to be kind of like a fundamentalist fear starking. Fundamentalist fear is all about saying that if somehow we leave the prescribed path, that we will be totally lost. A more expansive spiritual tradition like ours says it's not that the rules are always wrong. It's just that reality is bigger than the rules. That's why I think the ancient rabbis wanted to say, learn the basics first before you study the mystical stuff that throws everything up in the air so that you don't lose touch with what is really real. That's why I love this movie, because as unfamiliar and strange as it looks, it was the most real experience I've had in seeing a movie in a very long time. I think it invites us to wed a book that many of us have heard about. And in fact, it is, I think, the single biggest bestseller from any Unitarian Universalist minister ever. Robert Fulgham. You know it. What is it? Everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. Yes. Everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. It's a wonderful title. And yet we know as adults that life is not kindergarten. So how do we fuse these two? How do we really honor those essential teachings that many of us did learn in kindergarten about playing nice and sharing and respecting other people? 
We learn it by never forgetting the basics even when our lives look strange and unfamiliar. This is what Bob Dylan was talking about in these great words. They're a koan. They're like a Zen riddle. I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. Some of you have heard that before, but I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. That does not make logical sense, right? And yet it's completely true. That's the difference between literal truth and spiritual truth. We can be so much older back then and younger than that now if we learn to maintain a beginner's mind which looks upon our world not with eyes of rote and not with eyes of saying, ah, that's obvious, I've been there, I've done that, I've seen it all before, but in such a way that says, I am opening myself up to this new day and allowing the wonder in it to creep in and allow it to grace me. And so many of us, especially as adults, are looking for that, that refreshing of our viewpoints, that refreshing of life. And sometimes it's really natural and intentional that we need to seek out the strange sensations, to refresh our minds and refresh our hearts and move us beyond that old, cynical, tired, and really not at all original attitude. It's the most commonplace thing in the world. I'm bored been there, done that, what's next, what's new, what's now, gimme, gimme, gimme. It's all about feeding the ego, and we wonder why we're never really sated when we live that way. But if we learn to pay attention and to cultivate that perspective upon what is strange or odd and look at it and learn to honor it, well, then we recognize that nothing is obvious and nothing is commonplace, and we should pay attention. I want to give you a demonstration of this right now. I was at a retreat, leading a retreat all day yesterday. Some of you were there, so I'm a little, little stiff, a little creaky. So um, this is, um, see if I can do this without destroying the battery pack. We have another one of these if I destroy it, right? All right, good. So this is, um, this is a yoga pose where you, you put one foot over here and you kind of bring your hands up here and back of the leg, you know, if, if you're really stiff. But, you know, you can bring them all the way up here, the front of the leg. And we're invited to kind of crunch this in until we start to feel the stretch in that right hip, my right hip, which I'm just starting to feel that stretch. I'm starting to feel the stretch. There it is. And in this moment, as a teacher, I ask people, find your edge. The edge, that place where you're saying, maybe this is starting to hurt a little bit. Where you're starting to say, I'm not sure I can take it any further. And then maybe you breathe in a little bit and you see that maybe you're a little bit more flexible than you thought you were before. And that's a new edge that you found. The point of all this is not extreme yoga or extreme spirituality. The point of all this is not to find the edge simply because the perspective there is somehow better. The point is to find the edge because when we find ourselves at the edge of what is known, we pay more attention. At that place of the edge, we may recognize that we start to perceive in a deeper way. And this particular exercise is this. How many of us really, day in, day out, feel the fact that we have a hip socket and we have a hip joint? And how freaking cool is that? 
And yet we go on. I know some of us do. But many of us go on throughout our lives just pretending as if the body is just something we can breeze right by. Missing the lesson that it's so miraculous. It's only at the edge of what we know that we might discover maybe not something new at all, but maybe something very old and something very timeless that has been here with us all along. This is one of the things that Susie, one of the creatively maladjusted 12-year-olds, the main characters in the movie, says. She says, I want life to be an adventure. I don't want to be stuck. Because all around her, all she sees are unhappy adults who are all stuck and miserable. And so when they are chased over by those, by those adults, chased after by those adults, they do not want to go back to that, and I cannot blame them. <laughs> We see that one of the first things in the movie that Susie describes herself, we see her looking through a pair of binoculars. And she says that her binoculars are her superpower, her magic power. It's a pretty obvious lesson right there. The magic power for her, not just for her, but for all of us, is the power of our perception. It dictates so much of the meaning that we derive in life, the powers of our perception outward and the power of our perception inward. Many of you know that I have been cultivating a path as a mindfulness teacher over this past year, and we just had our second mindfulness retreat yesterday. It was a beautiful, deep, rich day filled with a lot of silence and also a lot of tears, actually, a lot of, a lot of beautiful flowing movement and presence. And sometimes I'm asked... Are you just kind of grafting mindfulness onto Unitarian Universalism? Is it just kind of a cool thing that you found and you're saying, yeah, we're going to shoehorn in there. It kind of belongs. Well, actually, no. I believe that mindfulness maybe is a different and skillful means of realizing a very core Unitarian Universalist teaching. I mean, simply because we do not have a dogma or a creed that we make you recite doesn't mean it's catch as catch can. There are core teachings to this tradition. One of them is this, and it is how I am animated as a Unitarian Universalist to pursue a mindfulness path. I've read this to you before. I'm sure I'll return back to it again. But try and hear these words, not as, oh, Ken's reading that again. Try and perceive them as if you're hearing them for the first time. It's one of the reasons I repeat myself over and over again. Because if I'm up here doing all novelty, then none of us are learning a damn thing. These are Thoreau's words, who is much wiser than I am, much wiser. He said it is something to be able to paint a particular picture or to carve a statue and so to make a few objects beautiful. But it is far more glorious to carve and paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look to affect the quality of the day. That is the highest of the arts. Every person is tasked to make their life even in its details. Worthy of the contemplation of our most elevated and important hour. What Thoreau is saying is that the power of our perception is our superpower, is our magic power, is the power that allows us to get in touch with what is really here in our lives. See, if we alter our ways of perceiving, we, in fact, I believe, and I know it from my own experience, will get us back in touch with those basics that maybe we're wondering where they are, that basic sense of faith, that basic sense of connection, that basic sense of kindness and compassion. 
Now, I posted on my Facebook page this past week, and a whole bunch of you liked it and even thanked me for putting it up because it sounded like it was maybe a rotten news week for some of us. There were some tough things. I mean, there were some good things that happened this week, some guilty verdicts that were certainly some good stuff, but those are about some really horrendous realities. And so when I posted this, I posted a meme that said, 21 things that will restore your faith in humanity. Some of you have seen this. And if you can see this in here, that's a, that's a big fire fire holding an oxygen mask over the face of a kitten. Oh, come on. About half of you went, oh. What, the rest of you are crossing to dog, dog people? Let me hear a collective, oh. It's cute. Come on, allow yourself to admit that things are cute every once in a while. That's all right. It's not something we see every day. And so when we see something like this, we go on. Oh, the heart melts a little bit, and we start to feel kind of childlike, and that's wonderful. And it's also not just about feel-good memes, things that make us stop for a moment in our lives and say, yeah, you know, humanity isn't really so awful after all, and then we just go right about with our living. Sometimes the ability to fuse things together And to make something new by bringing together different elements that people did not expect can really change lives. It can change whole nations and countries. If you show the next slide. Some of you know exactly what this is. This is the Names Project. The last time it was put on the mall in Washington. Those are all quilts. Quilts put together. Memorializing tens of thousands of people who have died of AIDS. Now, if you'll show the next one, this is a close-up. You see there, Mark Rich. Just below it, you see another man. You can't quite see his main Tim McBride. I can see it. You are loved eternally. That red one underneath there. One of the political and cultural writers I like the most, I return to his blog more regularly than anyone else's, is a guy named Andrew Sullivan. And he recaptured an essay that he wrote 20 years ago, pre-internet age, just after the time that he found out that he was HIV positive and what his experience was like going to that mall and seeing all of those quilts and seeing names that he knew. And he also said that at the time, one of the reasons why he, as a gay man, was really struck by the power of those quilts is because he felt it was for the first time in mass, the first time that many straight people like myself started to pay attention to the real serious quest for LGBT rights. Why do I think the Names Project and the quilts were so powerful for people? Because I think they answered a charge of bigotry and homophobia and just simple, plain old stereotyping that most of the culture had absorbed. And I put it this way, that gays and grandmas don't go together. Of course they do. They always have. (laughs) But in the popular and homophobic culture, quilts, what could be more grandmotherly than that? And the lives of all these people, not all of them men, not all of them gay, but the vast majority, especially at that point in the disease, were. And bringing this powerful representation of memory together with a group that in the popular and bigoted imagination did not belong was a new way of seeing grief for many people. 
And it started to get many of us involved in the fight for a more inclusive society. When we enlarge our capacity of our perception, when we make that our superpower, our magic power, we're not just seeing more, we're loving more. We're opening the heart more. We see that it's not also just about folks out there who might be different from us in some ways. We also see that that perspective is directed inside as well. That ultimately the power to love and perceive more boldly is about us and it is about other people. If love for other people is really going to be genuine, it has to include us and ourselves as well, too. We cannot give away something that we don't possess already, at least in part. I'm going to return to the movie now as I start to draw to a close. I mean, the setting of the movie is a kind of suburban anywhere. (laughs) It involves, you know, prosaic stuff, camp, and scouts, and first kisses. Basic kind of stuff. And what the movie does so well is it warps our perspective on these things and makes them just strange enough that we might say, wow, that these things are a part of our world is really, really cool. And perhaps if we cannot take these basics for granted, then we will stop taking our own lives for granted. It reminded me of these two people. From the first ever wonder years. Go ahead and kiss. They're about to have the first kiss. And this is the voice of the grown-up Kevin Arnold at the end of this pilot episode. It was the first kiss for both of us. We never really talked about it afterwards. But I think about the events of that day again and again, and somehow I know that Winnie does too. Whenever some blowhard starts talking about the anonymity of the suburbs or the mindlessness of the TV generation, because we know that inside of each of those identical boxes, with its Dodge parked out front and its white bread on the table and its TV set glowing blue in the falling dusk, there were people with stories. There were families bound together in the pain and in the struggle of love. There were moments that made us cry with laughter, and there were moments like that one of sorrow and wonder. See, they had the first kiss just after Wendy found out that her brother had been killed in Vietnam. To really perceive the wonder of our lives, we need to day by day open our perception, which no one can tell us, we have to realize for ourselves, that nothing is obvious. Ultimately, our best prayer that we will ever, never utter is a prayer we can't say. It is the prayer of the power of our perception, the power of our sensing. It is getting in touch with what the ancient mystic, it's amazing, 800 words years ago he wrote these words, Meister Eckhart, the eye with which I see God is the very same eye with which God sees me. Wrap your mind around it and don't, because it's not something we understand. It's something we can only live. Our perception really does need to be born again every day the spiritual power of a certain practice to awaken us. It's one of the reasons that spiritual practice is one of our core values. I mean, if we really stopped our lives enough, stopped and slowed down enough to wonder and to be amazed, 
would that be so awful for any of us? I mean, we will stop, down to, stop by to watch a crash on the highway. But many of us sometimes do not take the time to slow down enough to perceive our own lives, the strangeness and the beauty and the wonder of what is happening. The founder of Methodism, John Wesley, said his experience of faith, not the doctrine of faith, not the dogma of faith, not the creed of faith, the experience of faith was this for him. The heart strangely moved. I hope that your day today is strange. I hope really strange. I hope that your day is so strange you have to stop and say, wow, and pay attention. And may you be moved in that. May all our hearts be strangely moved. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O divine of seeing and sight and perception and taste and smell and touch. May we recognize all of these as portals for ongoing revelation. That indeed the burning bush and all bushes still blaze overflowing with meaning. An ever flowing stream giving forth the opportunity for connection. The world is already here waiting for us. May our prayer this day be that we will accept its invitation. Amen.